everybody. Welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson. I am your host. And today I am here with Reverend Daniel Humbert. And we're going to answer the question, what's the difference between sacraments and ceremonies? Um, So this is a very specific question, but it is inspired by somebody who actually wrote in to the podcast. Y'all can do that, you know. Um, And so here is a question from Justin that, that he sent to me. He said, I'd like to hear about the topics of baptism and communion and what those are really about. I know it's something I learned back in confirmation, but... It's been a little while since then, so my memory's a little hazy. And then he goes on to say, if I'm being honest, they kind of seem like cultish rituals when you don't know much about them. And I appreciate your honesty, Justin, because I can totally see how from the outside looking in, some of these sacraments and ceremonies that we do can feel a little odd and out of place compared to the rest of our culture. So thanks for writing in and... Uh, asking this question, and hopefully Daniel will be able to help you out a little bit today yeah, with let's some hope. of that confusion. Let's hope. Um, I may confuse more than help. Who yeah, knows? we'll see. So I want to start out with I, what I think is a more basic question of what is a sacrament? Where did that come from? Yeah. Um, well, I apologize. I forget what the word, where the word itself comes from. But sacrament basically is um an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So it's a sign act, right? In other words, it's something we do. So it's an outward and visible sign, i.e. bread and juice or wine, uh, water with baptism, right? So an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So it's something that helps indicate that God's at work in us and through us and doing something in and through us. And so that's what a sacrament is. It's an act, a sign act, that helps us to connect with God and in particular sort of... um, receive and encounter God's grace. Is it safe to say that a sacrament and a ritual are connected or interchangeable in some way? Because I know ritual has like, is rooted in religion as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a sacrament is a ritual, but not all rituals are sacraments. Ritual really just means something we go through that helps us to connect, right? So a sacrament is a ritual, but not all rituals are sacraments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for many of y'all who listen, um, y'all know this is a, a podcast that's coming out of a Methodist church. Uh, we're a Methodist church located in... We're a United a Methodist A United church. Methodist church, not just any <laughs> Methodist church. We are a United Methodist church. Um, so I wanted to ask, why are only communion and baptism considered sacraments in the Methodist church when in the Catholic Church, on the other hand, they also include confirmation, confession, anointing of the sick, marriage, and ordination as sacraments. Yeah, that's a great question and a very common question for folks, because it is confusing, right, mm-hmm. that the different faith traditions kind of identify... Well, and we do... I don't know why, but we do have a lot of people who join the Methodist Church who came from the Catholic Absolutely. tradition, my Absolutely. dad being one of them, yeah, but yeah. it's really common. Uh, oh, it's very common, yeah. So... Um, not just Methodist, but virtually all, in fact, every Protestant mainline denomination and even most non-denominational Christian churches identify only two sacraments. And the reason is they're the only two that Jesus commands us to do. Uh, 
So in, as regards communion, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's, you know, basically a command. When you do it, you're going to do it in remembrance of him. And then in the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel, he says, go therefore and baptize, right? And so go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father. So, so these are the only two that Jesus commands us to do. Uh, secondly, uh, we believe they're the only two that, uh, well, not the only two, but they're because these are the only two that Jesus commands, and they're also, um, everyone can participate or experience them. Whereas in the Catholic tradition, there are a few of those, i.e. marriage and ordination, that not everybody can participate in, right? Not everybody can get ordained, and certainly in the Catholic Church, at least if you're ordained, you can't get married, right? So uh, we choose the two that Jesus commanded, and we choose two that everybody can participate in. Hmm. Do you do you know why the Catholic Church broadened to include all of those as sacraments? Yeah, I, I don't know that I could literally tell you what I know or why I know, but it's in part because they're very ritualistic, right? And in part, they're very traditionally focused, that is to say, traditions of the church. And those things are great, right? Confirmation is great. Confession is great. Anointing of the sick is great. But um, Jesus didn't command all those things. Yeah. And so um, I believe that was, this is me, that's all we're saying here, right? I believe that's the hierarchy of the church uh, through the fathers uh, of the church that said, we believe these are so important, we're going to lift them up to the level of, of a sacrament. Yeah. yeah. So when you were kind of defining sacrament, it felt a lot like a theo, uh, well, a seminary definition, hmm. also a theological definition, because... If I were to not do any research on the word sacrament, my first thought is, okay, it comes from the word sacred. Mm. Um, so anything that we hold sacred could be considered a sacrament. Is there um, error in that thinking? No, not at all. In fact, we sometimes uh, do a, do what I refer to as a reference point for that. We will say something is almost sacramental. And, and in that case, we're doing just what you described, right? That we're sort of saying something is sacred. And and uh, I apologize, I should remember, but I'm not recalling where that word comes from. But it's actually from the Latin. I remember that, but I can't remember literally what it means, but I don't doubt for a second. It, has, it means sacred or has connection to sacred, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really all about the way in which God is working in our lives and helping us to encounter God's grace. And that's what's important with regard to um, uh, our understanding of sacrament, because just on another level, for instance, so you mentioned the Catholic tradition identifies seven sacraments, but when you look at uh, most strongly, for instance, the Baptist tradition or the Anabaptist tradition, they, would, they rarely use the word sacrament. They actually use the word ordinance, and mm -hmm. ordinance is something different. Ordinance actually means something I do to help me encounter God. But they will refer in the Baptist tradition to uh, communion and baptism as an ordinance, not a sacrament. And that's a big theological difference of uh, the ordinance is about what I'm doing to encounter God, whereas a sacrament is about what God is doing in my life for me to encounter God, right? So mm -hmm. it's a big difference. In the Methodist tradition, would that mean that if, if we're holding communion and baptism as our uh, official sacraments— are confirmation, confession, anointing of the sick, marriage, and ordination ceremony considered ceremonies rather than sacraments? Yeah, not only ceremony, but in reference to your earlier comment, rituals that help us 
uh, connect with God and, okay. and are important. And, and I know you're going to ask me some more questions about that, but all of those things, obviously we believe marriage is a phenomenal ritual, if you will, that helps connect us with God. Certainly confirmation is a component that helps connect us with God, but they are not directly uh, in our theology ways that we encounter God's grace through that event. One could argue that we do uh, encounter God's grace through those uh, rituals but that that's not the primary focus of the rituals. The primary focus of those rituals is to achieve the specific goals of them, right? Marriage, uniting two people, uh, confirmation, uh, confessing my faith, acknowledging my faith. Um, the other component, the other one's anointing of the sick, for instance, or confession. Confession is clearly good for the soul, as, a, as you know it says, a- and we can encounter God's grace through that. But the point of that uh, Catholic sacrament is that I... Uh, reveal my sins, that I confess my sins, and that that in and through that is God's grace. So we put a lot of emphasis on this church and in the United Methodist tradition on baptism, confirmation, and communion. They're always big. Like anytime we have a baptism, it's a beautiful celebration that we do in the middle of worship service. Communion is always very meaningful. Confirmation is like a whole Mm. ordeal that we do. Our communion, confirmation, and baptism connected to Uh each other in any Uh way? Because it, it feels like they are, but... I, in my mind, I'm kind of with Justin of like, the lines feel hazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's going to be several connections here. So, uh, so one thing we haven't mentioned is all of our sacraments ought to be in the context of a worship experience, right? Oh. They are communal by nature. And so communion, as a simple, for instance, let's talk about the ritual of marriage. And if uh, someone chooses to have communion, in the United Methodist tradition, we would say um, you can't do communion in that wedding ceremony unless everybody participates. In other words, not just the couple, not just the uh, folks getting married, but uh, everybody, because we believe it's communal, right? Same way with baptism. Baptism is an event for an individual, but it needs to be done in the context of a worship experience when there are people of faith who come together to participate in the communal event. That's very important. In other words, we 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 would never baptize an individual completely separate uh, from a worship experience. Now, that worship experience doesn't literally have to be in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning at the given hour, right? It could be uh, other places. As a, for instance, we baptize our confirmands, and th- this is one of those connections you're asking about. We baptize our confirmands usually in a separate ceremony, but it's a full worship experience that has music and prayers and a message and scripture and, and a community of faithful people gathering together. So, in the United Methodist tradition, you're actually you're going to have a few other questions related to this, but confirmation is in many regards a culmination of our baptism, particularly if we've been baptized as an infant, because um, infant baptism has a wholly other connotation to it that we'll we'll get to in a minute. I know, but um, confirmation kind of fulfills that and and kind of brings to culmination everything that's happened from your infant baptism to now your profession of faith. Generally, a confirmation event is an individual, typically a teenager, that is saying, hey, I want to publicly acknowledge my faith. I've learned a lot about it. I want to now say in a public way, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And in part, if I've already been baptized, it's just confirming that, and that's where that name comes from. Mm -hmm. 
or if I'm getting baptized at the same time, it's just all of that wrapped into a great bow. Do you have to be baptized before you're confirmed? Yes. Why? Because baptism is this sign and symbol of my faith, and so confirmation is uh, an acknowledgement that my faith is um, real for me. That's basically the purpose of confirmation. It is a ritual that acknowledges, hey, I, I'm, I'm kind of acknowledging all of this is true for me now, and baptism is one component of that. So we, we marry them together and, and, and acknowledge that uh, confirmation comes after baptism, not before. Okay, because it has always felt like to me that baptism and confirmation are intertwined with yes, each other. very much Is so. communion a part of that too, or is it just a, a standalone thing? It, so um, baptism is an, initi- an, an initiation sacrament, right? It's, it's a way to say, hey, I'm a part of this faith tradition, and I'm acknowledging in some form or fashion either my parents are of a baby or a teenager or an adult is saying, okay, this is a public... Com-. And so communion, on the other hand, is a, a, um, a, a sacrament of um, fulfillment or um, connection to the greater body. So communion is not required for confirmation, but it certainly would be appropriate and affirming to say, hey, let's do, let's do communion as a part of this too. Yeah. And in the Methodist tradition, communion is open table, yes. right? And so like, you don't have to be baptized. You don't have to have been through confirmation. You don't have to proclaim your faith in right. any way. Right. Everybody's welcome to the table. Um, is there any uh, Methodist or... Uh, any tradition other than Catholic that does a first communion type thing? Because I yes. know like the Catholic Church, first communion is a really big deal, and you go through classes and you yes. learn a lot about it before you are able to take communion. Yes. In the Lutheran tradition, that's actually true as well. In most, but not all, Episcopal traditions, that's true. And to a lesser extent, but I know for some Presbyterian congregations, that's true, that there's this sort of... Um, uh, component that makes that first communion kind of really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a reason that we don't do that in the Methodist tradition? Uh, because open table. Right. Uh, because open table, we believe children ought to come. And we believe that um, people who, has no, who have no real clue about what this is all about are, are welcome to come. The formal liturgy actually says anyone who wants to know Jesus or have an experience with Jesus is welcome to come. And so, um, you know, technically what that means is uh, you got to have a desire, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't necessarily mean you've already committed to Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean you've been a follower of Jesus. It just means, you know, I think I want to know something about who this Jesus is. Part of that stemmed from our founder, you know, John Wesley is the founder of the Wesleyan movement, the Methodist movement. And John Wesley believed, as, as I do, that communion could literally be a converting sacrament. That is to say, somebody could come to that experience having received that bread and that juice and feel as though somehow, man, they, they literally encountered God and had, a, had an experience that said, I, I want to not only know more, I want to follow what this movement is about. Yeah. So it's a really cool opportunity. And I think that I ask all of these questions about baptism and confirmation and communion, and, and it is really interesting to me because as an adult, this all really makes sense to me, and it is meaningful, and it, it's beautiful, but a lot of this happens as a child. Mm. And so I've always struggled with the fact that um, 
I was baptized as an infant. It wasn't a choice that I made. It was a choice my parents made for me. And sometimes we do remember your baptism ceremonies. Well, of course, I'm not going to remember it. I was a few months old. And then I think about confirmation and I'm like, man, I was an idiot in the sixth grade. Like I, I was just wanting to hang out with my friends and flirt with boys. Like that's what I cared about. And so when the confirmation ceremony came, it was basically like, okay, my parents signed me up for confirmation. I did all the classes. I'm standing in a line in front of everybody at the church saying, do you profess your faith? And I'm not going to say no, because I'm 12 years old and scared to death (laughs) of being the person to say no. And then uh, with communion, it was just something that we got up and did every single Sunday. And so part of me feels like, man, I think that doing all of this as a child the meaning was lost on me Mm. for so long. And it wasn't until I was an adult and exploring it that I realized how meaningful it really is. And then part of me wishes, oh, I wish I could have made the decision to get baptized. I wish I could have decided later in life to go through confirmation. Um, Why is it that we do infant baptisms for some reason, the magic uh, age is sixth grade for confirmation. Yeah. You know, where did that come from? Yeah. Well, so the simple answer is it's all tradition. Um, but let me give, because I'm a pastor, a more ex, you know expanded uh, rationale. So we baptize in the United Methodist Church tradition babies for a couple of different reasons. One is we actually believe it's scriptural. Uh, we believe uh, when you read the Book of Acts, there are at least two occasions where entire households are baptized, and uh, it, it was done in such a way that it was in the house. So it, it was highly unlikely, for instance, that uh, it would have been immersion, number one, because there would have been no tub in a house. There would have not even been, I forget what you call it, but those, those big uh, metal, you know, uh, number 10, yeah. whatever. Um, and we're assuming they're not u- near a river or a body of water. Correct. Yeah. And so it's highly likely that in the biblical day, in that biblical story, uh, that it's it's done with a small amount of water. And we also make assumptions that um, in full households, there must have been children in those households, whether literal infants is another issue, but certainly young children, right? And then we also know Jesus expressed on a number of occasions, let the children come to me. And his intention there is what the intention of baptism is. The intention is that children come to Jesus for faith, for his love, for his mercy, for his forgiveness, right? And so baptism is a sign and symbol of that. And then finally, and this this is the least known of the reasons we baptize infants, but Baptism is an initiation rite, as I mentioned, and what that means is we are initiated into the body of Christ, we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. So as an initiation rite, it's connecting us to what God is already doing in the world. God's grace is already in and on that baby, whether the baby knows it or not, whether the baby understands it or not. And so part of what we know is Baptism is a sign and a symbol, right? An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So if that's true, then God's grace is already capable of working in that baby's life. We happen to refer to it as prevenient grace. That's a big old fancy word that simply means God's grace coming before I know it, before I can claim it, before I understand it, right? So that's prevenient grace, and that's why we can baptize babies. Another distant Old Testament connection is also 
and we, we dealt with this during our weird series, circumcision. Circumcision is a, is a, a rite of initiation in the, in the Hebrew tradition, right, that is done to an infant, an infant male specifically, uh, and it's a, it's a rite of passage and it's a ceremony that claims them for covenant. And so because that was done in infancy, because of these stories in the scriptures in infancy, and because of our belief in God's uh, prevenient grace, we can baptize babies even when they have not yet professed faith, and then that final component is, because of that, they haven't professed faith, their parents and the community of faith are making a vow on their behalf for a later time that they might make their own profession, right? Moms and dads make the confession or, or vow, hey, we're going to raise you in the Christian tradition, we're going to help you understand who Jesus is. The congregation does the same thing. This is why we can't do it in isolation. We can't do it sort of separate. I just had a question just last Sunday about, hey, we know a family that wants to get, wants to get their two kids baptized. They're not members of the church. They don't even come to the church, um, but they want to get their kids baptized. And I said, we'd love to baptize them. We want them to get baptized. We want them to be a part of this. But Golly, a part of our theology is you got to be a part of us because we're going to make a vow on behalf of those kids that say, hey, we're going to help raise them. We're going to help them understand the faith. So it has to be done in community. Mm -hmm. Well, and in every, um, I, I get kind of confused on like chicken or the egg here because I can't remember if it is in the Methodist tradition that you need to be a member of a church before you're baptized or you need to be baptized before you become a member. Yeah, and, and why is that? Yeah. So a uh, couple things. One is, and this is, this is a bit ironic, I'll just own this. So um, because baptism is a rite of initiation, hey, this is a part of you being a part of the community of faith— um, it needs to happen before you say, hey, I'd like to actually join this community of faith. But, excuse me, for us in the Methodist tradition, that baptism can be at any other church. It doesn't have to be at our church. It just needs to have happened. Mm -hmm. Because again, part of our belief in the United Methodist tradition is that this is God acting on our behalf. So when God acted on your behalf in infancy, even when you didn't know it and you didn't understand it and couldn't remember it and you know made no sense to you, we believe God was there, God was doing it, God was making it happen, and therefore it's good. We, we don't need to redo it. We don't need to re-baptize because it's not our act, it's God's act. And so that's why we don't rebaptize in the Methodist tradition. But we do say, golly, you need you you need is need is not the right word. The baptism is important prior to membership because the baptism indicates your faith profession and membership is simply a human acknowledgement of that profession. That's why we ask for the baptism before membership. Okay. And so then when we get to the point of that profession, why sixth grade? Yeah. Why, ha why have we claimed that? Yeah, that's tradition. Uh, and I have to agree that over the decades now, having done both youth ministry and a pastor, we need to change this, uh, but it's so heavily entrenched. So I couldn't give you an exact date, but golly, it started probably in the Middle Ages where we thought that age 12 was the age of reason. It was the age at which I could begin to... Boy, were they wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, it's gotten even worse, right? That is to say, um, children age 12 are not nearly as prepared to have sort of rational conversation about faith because it's mysterious, right? It's it, Holy crud, it's hard for us as adults to sometimes understand it. Um, but 
it was well entrenched for centuries that it was age 12. And for some, for most, that's sixth grade. For a few, that's seventh grade. But that's why we do it. I am an advocate, though I've clearly not pushed it. I'm an advocate of moving it into high school age Mm -hmm. because these are hard topics. And um, unfortunately, youth these days are not quite as ready for these kinds of conversations. I mean, you admitted it for yourself. Mm -hmm. I admit it for myself. Even I went through confirmation at age uh, age 12 as well in sixth grade. or It was seventh grade for us back then. But um, I couldn't tell you I learned a lot. I will say confirmation to me, being a sixth grader, it didn't feel like a profession of faith as much as it felt like an initiation into the youth group, mm. which I don't know if that's a bad thing. I mean, it was a great way to feel connected, build relationships quickly, and uh, kind of build your own little church of your peers sure. within yeah. that, which I think yeah. is a positive thing, but it, I don't think that that was supposed to be what I was no. to get out of it. No, it's not. In fact, uh, I've been very deliberate while I've been at this church and and certainly every other church that I've served, whether as a youth uh, pastor or as uh, the senior pastor, is this, to help the confirmation class understand that the goal of this time that we're spending together, of learning about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and church and all that stuff, that sort of the end culmination is for you to make two choices for your life. One of which is, do I really want to be a follower of Jesus and do I want to profess that? Is that really a part of what this is all about? That's the first uh, choice that you get to make. And we hope you make the choice to follow Jesus, but it's your choice and, and it's up to you. And then the second is this, if indeed you want to be a follower of Jesus, do you want to do that in the context of this particular community of faith called Treach Memorial United Methodist Church? And if so, do you want to join the church? So we, we tell them all throughout uh, here now at Treach, you, these, are, these are the two end goals, but they are always your choice. And we have had, at least in my time here, um, Almost every class I can think of over the last four years in particular, we've had one or two of those confirmands who said, I'm not ready and I don't want to do that. See, that's what I was going to ask because I feel like my time in confirmation, it did not feel like a safe space to say no. And that could be true. And that's probably the experience of a lot of people who are like, yeah, I mean, I'm put on a stage in front of everybody to profess my faith and and my grandparents showed up and my parents showed up, my aunt and uncle are here, you know, like it's really hard to say no. Yeah, no, exactly. And so why, again, why I've asked them in the confirmation class to, um, again, make sure that it's clear about the two choices. And then also, because we've instituted what's known as the membership covenant here, that that's expressed too, and what, what we expect from that. And it's all done before that Sunday, mm-hmm. so that it's it's a, I wouldn't call it necessarily a private thing, but it's much more private than in front of 500 of your closest friends and relatives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'll go back to one thing with regard to that. So in my family, I'm, I'm seventh generation Methodist. I mean, I, I can trace my roots way back. But for some reason in my family, uh, we always baptized at confirmation, not in infancy. So all of my siblings, my dad, this is from my dad's side, uh, my dad, his siblings, and yada, yada, down the, they were all baptized at confirmation. So Kay, on the other hand, who likewise grew up Methodist and, and a couple of generations at least, um, all baptizes infants. And so, so you do remember your baptism. I do literally remember my baptism, and, and it was a meaningful event for me. And I believe it's a meaningful event for any of our confirmands who do it when it's that age, because you can remember it. But 
So in our own family, this became a personal deal. I said, Kay and I had conversations early on before kids, and I said, honey, I know we've got, you know, sort of two different family traditions. And so we have two children. Our first child was baptized as an infant, and our second child was baptized at confirmation. And it was just a way for us personally to kind of merge our family traditions together. And that's really all it was based on, is family tradition. Uh, getting back to uh, remember your baptism. So the baptismal remembrance uh, ceremony, which we do do, right, almost literally annually, sometimes even more than annually, is not so much about um, literally memory-wise remembering your baptism, because as you rightfully point out, if you were baptized as an infant, you, you can't remember that. The point is to, to acknowledge, I remember that I am baptized and that I am claimed and that I am sort of set apart for followership in Jesus. That's what we mean by remember your baptism. It's not a literal claim of memory. It's a claim of connection and covenant. You know, I don't know if that was ever actually explained to me because I know every now and then we have the baptismal waters and yeah. you're asked to dip your finger in it, make the sign of the cross on your forehead and remember mm -hmm. your baptism. And everyone just said it as if it's self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just sitting here like, well, I can't remember that, but <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm taking it a little too literally. <laughs> no, I appreciate you saying that because, you know, as somebody who grew into this tradition, I, I think you're right. We have taken far too much for granted and not said more about, we're not asking you to have a memory. We're asking you to be connected. We're asking you to connect yourself to the claim that was made on your behalf or that you made on your behalf if you, if you were not a baby. Um, it's about connection and covenant. So I, I do want to ask, are these rituals required to be Christian? Yeah, they, the simple short answer to that is no, they are not required. But it, what happens is, if indeed they are um, channels of grace, in fact, again, John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan movement, said that of baptism and communion, they are the... Communion in particular is the grand channel of grace. It is, the, it is the one way, Wesley would say, that we can experience God's presence and grace the most. And so, golly, why would I not want to participate, right? Why would I not want to sort of have this um, conduit that will allow me to experience God's presence in a very real and tangible way? But is it required? No, it's not. Well, because I, I talk to people who were, there's a lot of fear around what if I die before I'm baptized? Mm. What if I die before I'm able to give my last rites or to take mm -hmm. communion one more time or, or all of that? Um, where do you think that that fear comes from? Is that bad <laughs> teachings? Is that like, where where are we getting that idea? Because my understanding of, I'll, I'll be upfront, I always thought the reason we baptized as infants was to, to protect them, them yeah. in case something happens. Yeah, that's not United Methodist. That is Catholic. In the Catholic tradition, the reason they do baptize babies is to save them from purgatory or hell, literally. Uh, we don't baptize infants for that reason. We baptize infants, as I mentioned, to affirm God's grace, to assure parents and the children eventually that God loves them and God wants a relationship with them. Uh, it is not about death. It is not about saving you from something so much as it is saving you for something. And that's a big difference, a huge difference. But um, the Catholic Church has great um, 
permeation, right? Even if I'm not Catholic, I I may have had it in my tradition. It clearly is global uh, and was the church for you know, the first thousand years, right? And so it just permeates. I mean, I've had lifelong United Methodists say that to me. I want to baptize my baby just in case. And I'll, I will always say, it, there are some rare exceptions, but uh, I will always say, we're, we're not saving your baby from hell or death. We're saving your baby for the goodness of God, and we're saving your baby for them to know God's love. That's what we're doing here. So, um, and secondly, I mean, you you said, golly, is this bad teaching? And I personally, I would say, yeah, because when we want um, to baptize somebody, whether adult or, or the otherwise, by the way, the oldest person I ever baptized was 98 years old. Oh. And sh- she was a huge gift to me in my own personal life, because here was a woman who um, lived her whole life, right? I mean, she's 98 years old, lived a good life, lived a healthy life, um, but wanted to be baptized. And and for her, it wasn't about what if I die. For her, it was, I just want to make this, I want to finally make this claim that I love God and I love Jesus, and I'm glad that they love me. And I thought, man, we need to take her on the road, right? I mean, we need to help people to see that. This is a wholly other conversation that you set aside for another podcast, but... Um, if we make what happens to us after we die the ultimate reason we follow Jesus, we've made a tragic error. That's not the point of the faith. The point of the faith is not only to follow Jesus and his teachings, but to, because of his teachings to help build the kingdom of God. And that's about here and now, and that's about how we live for Jesus right now. Um, I won't get too far off on this. Oh, yeah. I will definitely have a podcast in the lineup about the afterlife and, yeah, because, and what we're doing here. Well, because as you know, I mean, because I mean, you've you've heard it. You've pointed it out. People people seem to make everything about. So what what will happen if I die and I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, been baptized or I haven't claimed faith in Jesus or I haven't. And what about my friends who aren't followers of Jesus? Right. No. All of those are about what happens to me after I die. Jesus Jesus spent very little time talking about what happens to us after we die. He spent a whole lot of time and energy and effort about how do you live these teachings now, right? So, Well, and, and does that—so going back to um, the Catholic tradition versus the Protestant tradition— is that where there's a difference between christening and baptism? <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know. I've been invited to christenings, yeah. and I, I've gone to them, and they're beautiful. It feels did, a lot like a baptism. Did you did you bring a bottle of champagne to bash on the head of the baby at the christening like you do when you christen a ship? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I Honestly, I should have gotten that joke a lot sooner than I did. I know. I saw the look I on your face. Terrified. I was like... <laughs> terrified. I'm like, what are you talking about? I did not know that we were doing baby bashing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and that's obviously me being playful, but I, I just think it's silly. I think I get why uh, the Catholic church uses the word christening. It is a baptism. That's what it is. I don't know why they call it a christening other than the fact that obviously the word christening has the word Christ in it, and somehow you're being united with Christ through the baptism. But um, we don't christen. That's what you do to a ship. You christen a ship, right? I mean, that's—and so, um, I I don't know. It's likewise in in other traditions that do uh, baby dedications— it, it's it's different. It's not a baptism because they don't actually baptize them. But a baby dedication is more attuned to a christening, which would be um, 
hey, I, we just commit this child to God. We commit that we're going to raise this child up. So it's a portion of our baptism, but it's without the water and the actual sacrament itself. I know you're not going to have the answer to this, but I kind of wonder, making the joke about christening a ship, which came first, christening a baby or christening a ship? Because That's... babies have existed much longer than ships have. <laughs> so... <laughs> I How do you know? How do you bit. know? I want to push back a little bit <laughs> on that. Um, I'm wondering if maybe christening a ship came from maybe it did. the christening of a, but, an infant. But if it did, so I'm just going to keep the joke going. I mean, if it did, why are we christening a ship then? I mean, is the ship coming into one with Jesus? I to mean, claim what? it for God. Okay. That's Very. what we did. And is that what the champagne's for when we bash that on the side of the ship? Yeah, it's like wine with flair. <laughs> this, <It's, laughs> this is going nowhere fast. Okay. Um, I did want to talk about communion in a little bit more detail, <clears throat> too, and our understanding of communion <clears throat> versus other faith traditions. And so there's a big, beautiful word called transubstantiation. What? Um, that is not something that we talk about often in the Methodist church <laughs> because it's not part of our tradition. That's correct. We um, don't believe in it. Yeah. Right. And so I would just like to hear you explain what is transubstantiation? Um, honestly, I'm not convinced that I don't believe in it. Sure, I understand sure. it's like a Methodist uh, theology. That's not part of the theology, but... It is a beautiful idea, and it's a very mystical understanding of Christ, which I vibe with very, very sure. yeah. strongly. It, it, it is um, uh, enticing enough to want to believe it, right? So very simply, you just sort of separate the words out, trans and substance or substantiation. So trans means transform, become something different, right? So transubstantiation says the bread that we eat and the juice or the, or the wine— literally become the body of Christ, literally. And so that is the mystery in the Catholic tradition is uh, the belief that when the priest consecrates the elements of the bread and the wine, that they literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. It is why um, you have to save the host when you're done, because that has become the body of Jesus, and you cannot throw it away, you cannot drop it, yeah. You cannot do anything, and that the that the the blood has to be consumed. It's why the priest consumes it at the end of the Eucharist because it's Jesus's blood, and so and it's why it's so. You have to be so very careful, obviously, with those elements because they have now become, when consecrated, the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's Catholic. Um, I think it's Orthodox as it, well. It, it yeah. is, and so. Um, and the Orthodox, of course, consume in a slightly different way in terms of mixing the, the bread, the host, and the uh, wine. For all Protestants and um, a few others, we, we don't believe in transubstantiation. In the United Methodist Church, we, we talk about the real presence of Jesus, that the bread and the juice, in our case, are the presence of Jesus in a very real and tangible way, but not physically uh, objects of blood and and body. So would we say that it was symbolic yes. and not literal? That's correct. It okay. is symbolic. And do we pull that from Scripture? Because I, I think that with the, the Last Supper between um, Jesus and his disciples, I can understand where the idea of transubstantiation comes from, because Jesus says, bread is my body, uh, this is my body is my, broken for yeah. you. Yep. And so he's saying, this is what it is. Yeah. Um, and we're saying, well, he was speaking in metaphor. Um, so well, he, he was speaking in metaphor. But I mean, how do literally. we know that? 
because he didn't take a part of his body off of himself, nor did he pour out his blood from his body. We know that, right? The story doesn't describe that in any way, shape, or form. Now, So the story doesn't represent it as a miracle of Christ. It doesn't present it as a miracle of physical body parts turning into uh, juice and bread. It presents it as representing his body and his blood. Yeah. And so, but you're right. It, 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 and it is a major theological difference, right? I mean, you can see that if I believe that the bread and the, the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus, I've got to treat it. Con- well, and that leads me to understand it. It's with the um, Orthodox and Catholic traditions to hold communion, uh, to protect it so much and to hold it so close and to say, no, you need to be Catholic. You need to be a part of this faith tradition. It's not an open table. This is serious business. Well, And that is why, for instance, uh, you are, as a non-Catholic or Orthodox, why you are not invited to mm-hmm. the table, because you don't believe, I don't believe that that's the literal body and blood of Jesus. I believe it represents him. I believe it connects me to him. I believe it represents him. I believe it helps me to understand him tremendously better, right? I believe all those things. For many, you pointed out earlier that, you know, we have in the United Methodist Church a lot of former Catholics. This is the big sticking point. It's like I, I, I didn't really like necessarily all the traditions. I certainly didn't necessarily like all the social stances of the Catholic Church. I certainly didn't like some of the things that I knew were going on in the Catholic Church. But man, that transubstantiation is my deal, right? Because that's what they were taught. And so when people come into the Methodist Church, we just try to help them better understand the difference. Whether they accept it or not is up to them, obviously. I mean, we're not going to say you can't believe in transubstantiation and partake in this communion. Right. That's exactly right. We had a a former Catholic who joined this church about um, six or seven years ago who helps a lot in our youth program. And for her, you know, and you know how youth go, right? Sometimes communion is shared, and it's shared in kind of um, it, uh, informal ways, mm-hmm. right? She was, man, she was seriously upset, right? And so I had a conversation with her and tried to help her see that we're not being um, uh, disrespectful. It's just we have a radically different understanding of how this connects us to Jesus. And so within each of these sacraments, so baptism and communion, we consider a sacrament, and then confirmation is a ceremony. Are there rules around who can perform these sacraments? So do you have to be ordained to um, bless communion or to facilitate communion? Yeah, in the United Methodist tradition, um, uh, we have two levels of ordination, or two—not levels, that's a wrong word. We have two kinds of ordination, an elder and a deacon. And in some churches, those are lay positions, elders and deacons, and in the United Methodist Church and some other traditions, they are ordained. For United Methodist, in order to consecrate the elements, the bread and the juice for communion or the water for the baptism, you must be an ordained elder. Um, anybody else can participate in any other component of the ceremony, i.e. serve it, uh, even do a portion of the prayer of communion, pour the wine and break the bread, um, uh, any of those things, uh, help pour the water for baptism, uh, help with some of the liturgy of baptism, but the consecration words in, in, in communion, it's um, the... Um, 
uh, the um, the words of institution about you know the night before Jesus gave himself up, he took bread, and, bread. and then the prayer of consecration, the anamnesis, is the formal word where we invo- invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit over communion, and the same similar kind of prayer over the water that we invoke the power of the Holy Spirit. In our tradition, uh, you have to be ordained an elder, a deacon can participate in all of that, but just not share those words. Well, why is that? Because <laughs> I I have been told by other people when I tell them that I'm Methodist, they describe it as the hippie denomination. You're the, the hippie Protestants, that anything goes, you That's know, funny. sort of thing. And it is like with the open table environment and, and how casual you said it has been at times. I have always wondered, why couldn't anyone just perform a baptism if they felt called by God to do so? Why couldn't we just serve each other communion? Right. uh, And, you know, it's the the, uh, scripture where two or more are gathered, God is present. So why is it that we put that rule on it of you must be ordained to perform these sacraments? Yeah, the simple answer is tradition. There is no. That's been the answer to all of them. Well, several of them, (laughs) right? Scripture does not dictate that you have to be ordained, because of course that didn't exist uh, in the Christian tradition. There were ordained priests in the in the um, Jewish tradition. They didn't do baptism, of course. But um, so Methodists come from the Church of England, which come from the Catholic Church. Well, guess what? That that's the requirement out of the Catholic Church and out of the Church of England. So we inherited that tradition that uh, Wesley and his immediate followers refused to break from. And it's so traditional, it's believed that through the Catholic lineage that it all traces back to Peter, who was the rock of the church, was the first uh, uh, bishop of the church. It all stems from that, mm-hmm. literally. So I don't know if we've confused people more or we've helped people. Under- I like to think that we've helped people let's, understand let's why we so. do what we do. And... Um, but I do want to get on a more personal level. Um, you mentioned the story of how meaningful it was to you to baptize the 98-year-old woman. Um, how have each of these sacraments impacted you personally? Mm. Well, I think it stems all the way back to my own baptism, knowing it, right? So I was 12 years old, and you get baptized, and... and uh, um, experiencing that at an age that it, it could make some sense. I can't tell you I fully understood it, but I, it made some sense to me that that sort of began my journey of discovery of how, how can I know God's presence more and how do I understand that? And that these two uh, sacraments help me. I mean, it is, I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to baptize people, whether adults, teenagers, or infants. It is a tremendous uh a privilege because it helps connect me with them and them with God, right? And so you're sort of a conduit. As regards communion, I think, and I, I, I have not done anything about this in my time here, but as in a large church, the pastor certainly can't distribute the elements, you know, and so forth. So I rarely, if ever, get to distribute the elements, and that is a huge blessing. Anybody, I'm sure you've done it yourself. For anybody who gets to distribute the elements of communion, it is an intimate act, right? You, you see people face-to-face, you encounter people's realities. In our church here, you know the tradition is that people call their name and then the server calls them by name, so there's just, again, this intimate connection. It's just a constant reminder that God really is with us. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a pastor, and certainly for some church me- uh, staff members, that is, when you know people's stories— 
their life stories. You, you know the pains they're going through. You know the struggles they're having. You understand um, their brokenness. Communion is a powerful way to see the healing. It's a powerful gift to recognize God works through those elements as simple as they are. And that's why even when it's symbolic, it can have true meaning and value. Well, and, and communion, it is an extremely intimate experience of uh, the church I'm a member of is a very small church. We have less than 100 people, probably less than 50 people every Sunday, and everybody knows everybody's mm, name. Yeah. And so when you're served communion, you don't even have to say your name. Right. They say, Alyssa. Yeah the body of Christ given for you and they look you in the eye right. and they, it, it's like you said, they know my story. They know everything that I've been going through. They know the struggles that I've had. Right. And there's, there is a lot of power in those words. Big time. Um, those moments, it really is the presence of the Holy spirit. Yep. Um, Absolutely. So how can we approach the sacraments in a way to make that experience of the Holy Spirit more accessible? Yeah. What can we do to prepare to make it more meaningful? The, the only thing I can say in response to that is just teach, right, and or demonstrate the importance of that. Uh, the acknowledgement, for instance, that we're all broken and that we need healing. The, the, the acknowledgement that we need God's grace more than anything else. The um, understanding that this is, uh, again, in, in Wesley's terms, this is the grand channel of grace. This is the most um, uh, meaningful or de- most deeply connected way that you can encounter God's grace. Just express that and then obviously demonstrate it in and through the experience itself. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that this was a very helpful conversation. Yeah. I know I learned a lot. So, Justin, I want to say a special thank you to you Indeed. for submitting yeah. this question. And he submitted a few more, too. So I'm sure that'll craft <laughs> some of our future episodes. And I want to remind y'all, hey, this is a collaborative experience. I love hearing from you. If you have specific questions or you've been curious about spiritual topics I love diving into stuff like this and exploring more and especially questioning things that we have always taken for granted to get into the heart of um, the grace of God. I mean, just the theme of grace through baptism, confirmation and communion. I don't know if I've ever made that connection across all three. Um, And so I think it's really helpful for us to take a second look at the things that maybe have become a little too habitual for us. There you go. Um, So thanks for joining us and uh, we'll, we'll see you again next week, but Hey, send in your questions. Alyssa R at tmumc.org. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org, and I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.